Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisand, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Today is Horticulture Day. I'm Charity Nebbe. The leaves have fallen and snow is falling, but that doesn't mean you need to spend all winter inside. There is work to be done and wonder to be found in the woods. Billy Beck is our forestry guide today. He is assistant professor of natural resource ecology and management at Iowa State University. Hello, Billy. Hi, Charity. Thank you so much for being here today. And before we get to the wonder of the woods, let's start with the work of the woods, because uh, people do ask us all year long, when can I prune? When can I do this? When can I do that? So is this time of year actually a good time of year for getting some work done? Uh, I would say yes. Um, I I love winter. Winter is the time of year that I really fell in love with the forest and forestry um, and I, I would say just off the top of my head, this, this late fall, we've kind of pushed the fast forward button here yeah. <laughs> into winter, but, uh, this late fall period, um, the top of my list is getting out and identifying and controlling invasive woodland plant species. Um, I always kind of say, wait a little bit longer to prune maybe in late winter. And Aaron and I were just talking about this, but if you were to do one thing right now, um, they stick out like a sore thumb, many of them. They're really easy to spot. Um, and now is a great time to start controlling these problematic uh, non-native invasive plant species in our in our woodlands. Yeah, let's talk about that. And actually, I've been acutely aware of invasive honeysuckle lately. Right now, it seems to be the only thing that still has leaves in the woods. And I've been removing some from my property, which makes me see it everywhere. And oh my gosh, Billy, I see it everywhere so tell me about this invasive honeysuckle and and what we are seeing yeah you're right and i I always um encourage folks like the first step is just to to educate yourself on identification and it's a lot more than invasive honeysuckle there's other things like non-native bittersweet and buckthorn and um a lot of honestly common landscape plants that you can find at your local you know home improvement store you know things like japanese barberry um burning bush both beautiful species but you see those a lot popping up in our in our woodlands and they they often start uh in your yard in, in town so um you're right this is the the best time of year to kind of well this in spring they leaf out very early and they keep their leaves late which gives them a competitive advantage against our, our native species but yeah we've got resources i'm gonna do a lot of plugs today okay. uh, we've got resources on our natural resource stewardship extension website about how to identify and control uh, these invasive species. And I say control because I really feel you're never going to be able to eradicate these things from the landscape. It's all about kind of controlling them and keeping them at a level that they don't do any ecological or or economic harm uh, to to our woodlands. But yeah, I would say start getting out and identifying. And once you know how to identify these things, you're going to start seeing them everywhere. So not not only if you own land or or are a steward of a a woodland, start walking around your city parks, uh, public areas, green belts, and you're going to really start noticing these. When, let's say, they are on your land, I mean, when you notice them, is it a good idea to tie something around the tree, flag it so that you can deal with it later in the season when those leaves are gone? Actually, um, now is a great time. When the leaves are on, now is a great time to address them. Um, Just thinking about their physiology, right now, 
they're tending to pull their resources down from the top, from their crowns, and, and placing them back into their roots. So a lot of times, if you do want to use chemical to control them, um, that will translocate that chemical down to the roots and really hit them, hit them hard. So um, there's, yes, but if you want, I would go ahead and you could flag them for later, um, addressing them later through mechanical or cultural methods. But um, right now, especially, is a good time physiologically to, to hit them with, with chemical if you do um, if you do want to do that. Well, and, and so if you do choose to go that route, of course, people who choose to go that route often are very concerned about making sure that they're not damaging other plants yep. or putting yep. too much of these chemical controls into the environment. So what's your method? What's the, the most responsible method? I'd say the most responsible method is educating yourself on, obviously, identifying what you're attacking. That's the first one. I would highly recommend working with a professional forester. And again, plug, you can find those contacts for your county on our Natural Resource Stewardship webpage. Uh, work with that professional forester. They're going to be your guide on chemical recommendations and, you know, IDing uh, these species. And honestly, too, like explaining and, and, and demonstrating to you how these will ne ne could negatively impact your woodlands. And I'd say top of that list is the label is the law always go by the label on that chemical or herbicide. I hear a lot of people saying, what if I just double it up? <laughs> what if I just increase the, the concentration? No, <laughs> the label is the law. So that's really follow that that label. But this those time, are my top ones. Okay, and this time of year, I, I know a lot of people use the method where they'll they'll cut down the the species and then use glyphosate to paint the the remaining stump in the hopes that that'll keep uh, suckers from coming back in the spring. Is it warm enough to do that this time of year or does the cold make it harder for, for that system to work? I would really just make sure you do it immediately following the cut. Um, so within like, you know, half an hour of cutting that stump, do the application. And honestly, this time of year, too, because honeysuckle are multi-stemmed, cutting all those and properly treating all those stems for one plant can be challenging. So what we often recommend is what we do what we call basal bark application. So that's actually coating the bark with chemical about, you know, the top uh, from about 18 inches above the ground, uh, getting a good coverage on there. Um, and using, and again, look at the label, look at, we've got publications, I won't get into the details here, but we have publications on rates and chemical uh, concentrations and whatnot, but you'll want to use like what they call a penetrant. So something, a chemical, um, diesel fuel is a, is, a, is a common one to use that actually helps pull that chemical through the bark and get into the, um, the vascular tissue so it can translocate to the roots where you, where you want to hit it. So for multi-stemmed stuff, uh, like honeysuckle, basal bark application, we actually spray uh, the base of the stems is often a, a good good alternative there. And like you said, too, you could mow these down, uh, not treat them, and then wait for spring where they're, um, the reflush is lower and more easily uh, able to be hit with a foliar, foliar herbicide. So with all this stuff, it often takes a combination of treatments and it's never a one and done. That's what I would tell folks as well. Like you're, you're never just going to hit them and they're going to go away. It takes diligence. It takes monitoring. And it often takes a combination of, of tactics uh, to, to get these things under control. We are seeing so many invasive species. And, and of course, this is not new. But is it worse? Has, have there been conditions that have made this worse in Iowa in the last couple of years? I would say yes. Um, off the top of my head, you know, honestly... Um, 
one big issue we have, kind of a cultural issue in, in the state of Iowa, is most folks do not actively manage uh, their woodlands. So when that happens, when woodlands are neglected or you kind of have a, a hands-off approach, um, invasive species tend to uh, tend to become very prevalent. Uh, also, uh, you know, a lot of our forests are aging. Uh, we haven't done the management to kind of um, encourage regeneration and younger forests. So when those forests break up and we see these big disturbances, uh, invasive species love to take advantage over, over disturbances. So just, for example, after the derecho, a lot of our canopy in the central part of the state was, was opened up, uh, exposing the forest floor to a huge burst of sunlight. And when sometimes of these forests that weren't managed for invasive species, they, inc they took off incredibly with that new burst, burst of sunlight. So, yeah. And then you've got, you know, climate stressors, um, all the stressors we've introduced to our woodlands. Um, invasive species thrive under those kind of stressful situations. So I would, yes. So you mentioned that winter is really the time when you fell in love with the woods. It is also the time of year where a lot of us just want to stay inside and, and be warm and cozy. But <laughs> make your case. Why should we get out in the woods in the winter? Okay, no, I, I completely agree, and I think that winter is often a, it's a hot, no pun, sorry, for the pun here. <laughs> it's a hot time for forestry. Uh, a lot of our management, so like timber harvesting, thinning, uh, goes on in the winter because you can move around easy. Uh, the, the soils are often frozen, so you minif minimize soil compaction and erosion with equipment. Um, so us as foresters, we're often out in the winter a lot. Folks that I encourage to get out in the winter are often hesitant to for a variety of reasons. Obviously, this morning is a great example. Um, but I really want to start leveraging the winter or, or, or um, doing more things in the winter with, with forestry extension and education. And I've got my top. I, when I was uh, in middle school and high school, um, I wasn't really out in the woods a lot in the summer and spring. I was either doing a ton of fishing or working. But... Winter is really when I got out in the woods and really fell in love with forests and forestry. And my top things, this is kind of going to sound old timey here, but like um, I just absolutely love the, the solitude of the winter woods. In the summer, in the spring, it's obviously beautiful. Don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of background noise. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's people out there, which I love seeing people in the woods, but there's a lot of background noise and things like that. But in the winter, it's just almost dead silent. And all you can hear is kind of the trunks popping, the, the branches hitting together, uh, some scattered birds and wildlife. I just absolutely love the solitude. It's almost like meditating out there. Um, and the biggest thing I love about the woods in the winter is you can really see the nature of the forest. The leaves are gone. The understories kind of died back and being suppressed. You can see the shape of the trees. You can see individual trees. You can look up into the crowns and see um, is there damage up there? Is there any kind of vulnerability I should be looking for? Uh, wildlife stick out great in the winter, especially when there's snow cover. And you can just, I love just walking around and seeing like the playing CSI in the woodlands with the, with the snow, the, you know, the, the brush of a bird's wing or a coyote got into something, nailed a pheasant or something, and there's feathers everywhere. And just, you can really see how the wildlife use the woodlands, uh, in the winter. And really, if you look at species and species that hang on to their fruit and other um, assets to wildlife in the winter, you can see tracks and see how they use them and kind of educate yourself there too. So um, you can see the woods and you can really just have that absolute solitude. That's, that's my big two. So I know <laughs> it's kind of old timey. It's but... less windy in the woods. That's one of, <laughs> one of <laughs> that my. That's true. That is true. 
That is true. It's warmer. It's warmer in the woods. <laughs> I uh, like it. Billy Beck, Assistant Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management, also Iowa State University Extension Forester. For more gardening information and tips, please subscribe to our Garden Variety newsletter. You can find out more at iowapublicradio.org slash garden. I'm Charity Nebbe. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today, and you are welcome to join the conversation with your questions. You can give us a call at 866-780-9100. You can also send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. So far, we've been talking trees, but of course, we'll answer your questions about any of the plants in your life. With me today, Billy Beck, Assistant Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Iowa State University, and Aaron Stein is also here, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. Hello, Aaron. Hello. Thank you for being here. And Billy, uh, we before we forget to talk about this, I do want to give you the opportunity to talk about an opportunity for people who really want to get involved in woodland stewardship uh, to, to learn a great deal more about it uh, with Iowa State University Extension. Tell me, tell me a little bit about what you're offering. Yeah, I appreciate that opportunity. And this is just one of many... Um educational events and resources that we have. Again, I'm going to plug the Natural Resource Stewardship Extension website. Just do an internet search for that. But um, two programs of interest um, this spring, so running from April to May uh, in 2023, is the Master Woodland Steward Program. And we're hosting two of these, one in southeast Iowa, centered in Lee County, and then one in north central Iowa centered in uh, Mitchell and Saragorda County. So you do not have to be residents of those counties to participate, and you don't have to own woodlands. You just have to be a tree enthusiast uh, like we are here today. But this is kind of a, a crash course in forestry and forest stewardship. So it's six weeks, seven sessions, and it's about an hour of online kind of pre-work, lecturing, and then we follow that up with a three-hour in-field session. So we take you from the basics of... Uh, forest planning and setting goals, um, starting at the foundation of tree physiology, how trees grow, and then kind of um, putting that together into how woodlands grow or woodland ecology. And then we go into um, what I would call forest stand dynamics or silviculture, or in other words, how forests change over time and how we do in the, what we do in the woodlands can help guide that change. And then we also talk about uh, managing for some what I would call popular um, end goals for forest management. There's not one right way to manage your woodlands. There's a lot of goals out there, and they're not mutually exclusive. 
But we talk about managing for wildlife habitat, uh, timber revenue, um, clean water, and then carbon and uh, a climate uh, resiliency. And then we end with what we call um, continuing your woodland legacy. So how to, you know, when you pass on, how to keep your forest forested and how to keep your kind of stewardship vision uh, on the land and, and continuing. So one of the best things about this program is you're going to be able to meet with forestry practitioners and professionals and um, folks from Iowa State University and other universities around the state and meet with folks that uh, are, you know, share your passion for forest stewardship. So a huge networking opportunity um, through this program. So that's April through May. It's a kind of a cool period because you see the forest come alive and kind of, you know, go out of dormancy in April. You see the spring ephemerals pop up and then you see the leaves coming out, leaves coming out. So it's kind of a cool transitional period to be out in the woods and, and learning about uh, forest stewardship. All right. A great learning opportunity. And again, you can find out more at the Natural Resource Stewardship webpage if you search for that, Iowa State University. And Aaron, I am proud to tell you that I did get my bulbs in the ground, which oh, I know yeah. I know you were wondering. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got my bulbs in the ground, but then um, I was out, uh, I think about half a day before the snow came planting a tree. Nice, so, nice. Yeah. Well, I, I was in the ground though. <laughs> I was spending a, a lot of time actually working on the kind of thing that Billy works on. I was planting some native understory plants, some nine bark, Ooh. some elderberry, and and all of this. So we had like a huge project, and I had these hundred bulbs just sitting there waiting and waiting. <laughs> and so I I went out before it snowed, and I planted half of them in the dark. So it was really a <laughs> a perfect opportunity. They're not going to get much of a chance to actually put down roots. But hopefully they'll bloom in the spring. And, I think and they'll I'll, be great. Yeah, I'll be glad that I spent that chilly session outside right before <laughs> the ground actually froze. All right, we've got a lot of people with a lot of questions already. You can join the conversation at 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Jim says, I do a lot of mushroom hunting, and I see poison ivy vines over an inch in diameter and 40 feet tall growing up and smothering trees is this invasive should these be cut down that is a great question so that that goes back to kind of the first step in forest stewardship and that is like kind of setting your goals so vines can be an issue uh, say you're managing for high quality timber vines when excessive can get into tree crowns um, they add additional weight to the crown um, making them more susceptible to wind and ice damage they can block out um, you know sun from from hitting the the leaves of the actual tree themselves um, one really that we should be looking out for that's almost scary if you see an infestation is um, non-native bittersweet uh, as a vine um, but if your goal uh, for your woodlands is wildlife habitat um, poison ivy is an excellent wildlife food uh, for songbirds so it really depends on what you're looking to get out of your woodlands um, and again these these goals aren't mutually exclusive you can have both but if you get some larger poison ivy vines on a nice, you know, clean, bold walnut, um, again, based on your goals, that, that could be an issue. But poison ivy is, is an excellent wildlife food. Just, uh -huh. uh, just don't touch it. Uh, yeah, I was, I'm very, very <laughs> allergic and uh, I'm trying, 
trying to change my frame of reference. Thanks, Billy. But that's a that's a tough sell. Um, <laughs> Jim has another question as well. He says, my wife bought two bare root grape plants in a box from a home improvement store last spring. After sitting in the garage for a couple of weeks, I planted them in the garden where I had grown beans the prior year. I gave them a large tomato cage to climb on and covered them with floating row covers because of Japanese beetles. When I uncovered them in October, they had produced several branches, uh, five, six, and even seven feet tall. So my questions are, do I have to wait until next February or March to prune? And can I take advantage of all that growth so I can save one six-foot-tall main trunk and grow out laterals at three levels starting next spring? Yes, to all those things. And, <laughs> okay. and I'm happy to hear that they established well. Typically, when you buy bare root, one of your biggest goals should be to get it in the ground as soon as possible. Holding on to it um, for several weeks is is sometimes a Risky. little dicey. Yeah. Yes. So um, that's good that they were able to get established and established well. Um, I would still not do any pruning on these plants until uh, late winter. Um, and even into early spring, so February, early March, um, would probably be a better time. Um, after the really harsh cold weather hopefully has passed that we often see kind of end of January into February. So, and you can train it. Um, there are a lot of great references and resources from Iowa State and other places because it's hard to describe on the radio, but when you see a picture of it, it's really clear on how to get these trained up. Um, into um, a good system that will help those grapes be as productive as possible. But yeah, you can definitely use one of those to get that started here um, early spring. All right. If you have questions, you can email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. You can call 866-780-9100. Let's go to the phones. And Glenn is on the line in Ankeny. Hi, Glenn. Hello, Charity. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. What's your question? Well, I have a large catalpa tree in my yard. Uh, I planted it about 30 years ago or so. And uh, over the years, I kind of knocked some bark off the base of it. And I'm a little concerned that I've knocked too much bark off the base of it. And should I do something about that? Yeah, that's a common uh, situation. And I... I'm guilty of this this summer. I ran over a tree ceiling with a mower. Uh, don't judge me. <laughs> it was heartbreaking. But no, um, I would really, two things. I would do everything you can do in, to encourage the uh, the vigor of that tree. So back off with the mower. If, in periods of drought, make sure you're getting adequate water. Um, mulching around the tree helps retain moisture. It also um, kind of buffers those fine roots that are near the surface from you know winter temperature extremes. Um, do proper pruning, proper maintenance. And your guide on this, um, as opposed to like a rural setting, I would recommend reaching out to a certified arborist um, and checking out um, that wound and seeing if it's a, a hazard uh, that could, um, you know, be, be a liability on your place or just kind of assess the, the future of that tree and what that wound's going to mean for that. So, but yeah, any wound on a tree at the base um, is a, an entry point for disease and decay. So it's, it's, you really have to watch, and I, that's what another point about uh, putting mulch down is it really forces you to back off with the weed whip and the mower uh, in those situations. So, Yeah, that's a great point. I appreciate that. Yep. Thanks a lot for the call, Glenn. 866-780-9100. Barb is on the line in Des Moines. Hi, Barb. Thanks a lot for the call, Glenn. 
Uh, Barb, we're having a really hard time hearing you, almost as if you're not talking into your phone. Can you try one more time? All right. Can't hear you at all now. So, Barb, I'm going to put you on hold, and I hope that we can reconnect and you can ask your question in a few minutes. Let's go to Tyler on the line. Hello, Tyler. Yes. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm interested. I have a small residential property, and I'm interested in planting a windbreak on my property just to stop, you know, wind and also to kind of do a privacy fence with my neighbors. I'm just wondering what types of tree species you would recommend to plant. Excellent question. I'll, I think maybe Aaron and I can go back and forth on this one. So mm-hmm. what I suggest when folks ask me about what species to, to plant, I always say start thinking about your site conditions because everything is you need to match the species to the site to have a vigorous, um, fully functional windbreak. So there's a, there's a range of uh, resources out there to look at those. If you're in an urban area, you're probably going to have some... Um, um, less than ideal soil conditions out there, compaction, high pH, things like that. But really, I would start poking around and checking out the soils you've got on your property, see the spacing, how much space you have available, uh, and then kind of go from there. And uh, there's a range of native species and, for windbreaks, some non-native hardy conifers that, that do that do well. We've got pubs, uh, extension pubs mm-hmm. on that. But um, there's a lot of great... Uh, we struggle with conifers here a lot in Iowa, but there's a lot of great um, deciduous hardwoods and, and deciduous shrubs that can provide a lot of benefits beyond privacy and, and wind blocking. And Aaron, I'll let you share your favorites. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the other thing I would mention is that diversity is great oh, yes. for a windbreak because as grand and as attractive as a row of all the same kind of tree can look, if something happens or if there's an insect or disease pressure that gets introduced, you lose your entire windbreak. And so planting diversely is really, really important when it comes to windbreaks. And they all don't have to be conifers. I think there's a lot of folks who think it has to be evergreen to block the wind in the winter. And of course, that's not true. And not to forget shrubs. And some of my favorite shrubs for windbreaks, so this would be like the the outermost layer of your windbreak. Things like, um, I love elderberry um, uh, red twig dogwoods can be really attractive. Um, uh, if it's a wet area, elderberry can be nice for that, but so can buttonbush, which is also relatively easy to find in nurseries now, which is really nice, a nice pollinator, uh, uh, supporter as well. Um, so th- that's where I would start with the shrubs anyway. Aaron made a good point on diversity. We say this in forest stewardship as well, but like not only species diversity, but like Aaron said, structural diversity. So getting that mix of evergreen and deciduous large trees, medium trees, shrubs is is really great for um, a range of wildlife and pollinators. Tyler, thanks a lot for the call. And I'll put in a plug also for the State Forest Nursery, which if you're Mm -hmm. buying a lot of trees and you're trying to establish something large, that can be a a great way to do it. They sell a a lot of different varieties of bare root trees. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. Let's go back to Barb in Des Moines. Hi, Barb. Hello. Um, We, uh, our neighborhood association takes care of um, a woodland and there is a a large clump of Japanese knotweed. And I heard about the honeysuckle. And so I'm wondering, is winter a good time for us to tackle it? And also there in this woodland, there's a lot of garlic mustard that we've been trying to pull and uh, they're winning the fight. So with those two, um, are there, uh, is winter a good time? 
So for for garlic mustard, I would say um, for me, in my experience, spring when the bolts, or when the rosettes are just about to bolt, is a great time to hit them with uh, chemical. Which again, if that's your thing, that's fine. Um, but then that that spring when they do start bolting uh, before they go to seed, that's a great time to start pulling those and, and getting rid of them. When, if they do start producing seeds, you do want to pull them and put them in a black uh, bag so the seeds don't disperse. Um, Japanese knotweed is a very serious invasive species, and honestly, um, I'd have to look into whether winter is an ideal time to control. I've seen pockets of it around the state, and what it does, it makes these rhizomes or kind of woody underground roots, and it spreads that way, and they're as big as my my forearm. Not that that you know I'm that athletic, but like there are these huge uh, rhizomes uh, that grow under the ground. So. If you're looking to attack those, late fall may be a good time to apply herbicide so it draws it down and, and hits those hits those rhizomes. But you really have to know uh, what you're attacking and the physiology of it before you start um, doing the management practices. And honestly, I'd have to look that up because it's it's kind of rare and pops up here and there. I'm not that familiar with attacking Japanese knotweed. Um, there are resources out there with the Iowa DNR. And check out our invasive species page. I'm not sure if we have knotweed up yet, but our invasive species page on our, our natural resource stewardship website to see um, about about dealing with um, Japanese knotweed. I do have some great photos of the large rhizomes, but if anybody wants to see those. But um, as a great extension answer, I will look it up for you and get the answer. So. <laughs> All right, Barb, thanks a lot for the call, and good luck with, the, with both of those. And the garlic mustard, a lot of people are fighting that fight, and it is a tough one. Uh, let's go to Charlotte in Cedar Rapids. Hi, Charlotte. Good morning. We have a crab apple tree that's at least 25 years old. We need to cut it, cut some branches back that are... Uh, both on and near our home's roof line. Can we cut that back now, or if not, when's the best time to do so? Thank you. The best, yeah, the best time to do that is going to be late winter, early spring. Um, early March might be uh, a good time to tackle it. Hopefully you can find a nice, not-too-cold day to get out there. It's nice to prune that time of year because you can see the branches really easily. You have less material to deal with. And it gives the tree an opportunity. Um, it's past the really cold part of the winter. Um, and you have the entire growing season for that tree to address the wound that you create when you make a pruning cut. So um, that kind of early March for much of the state is a great time to tackle those projects. Charlotte, thank you so much for the call. And that that is the story with a lot of pruning, isn't Almost it? Almost all pruning. If you know, there are a few exceptions. Oaks we like to prune before March because of the risk of oak wilt. Um, usually February is kind of the cutoff date for pruning oaks. But um, for by and large. To, almost anything, uh, it's one of its best times to be pruned is is late winter, early spring. Um, and if I don't know what tree it is, that's when I'm going to recommend to <laughs> prune it. All right. Well, and of course, you're itching to get going with the, the growing season by that time. So it's nice to have a good solid chore that you can yeah, do on those nice good thing days. To start with. We're going to take a short <laughs> break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. It's Horticulture Day on Talk of Iowa with me, Billy Beck, Assistant Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Iowa State University, and Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. You can join the conversation. Call us, 866-780-9100. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. 
There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today, and you are welcome to join the conversation with your questions. Give us a call, 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100. You can also send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Bob has a pretty specific question for you, Billy. Uh, Billy Beck, Assistant Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management from Iowa State University here today, along with Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. So Bob asks you, Billy, what is your view of using Tordon herbicide to control honeysuckle and bittersweet? I've cut down large bushes with a chainsaw or loppers and used a paintbrush to treat the stems. Will Tordon harm desirable native plants? Yeah, so um, like I said before, good that you're identifying um, your target species and your non-target species. But Tordon is, what I will say about Tordon, it is very mobile in the soil. So there's a lot of uh, potential for flashback or um, harming non-native, or not, not, not non-native, um, native. non-target, okay, yeah. yeah, native non-target species. So um, it's a good practice that you're doing, you know, applying at the correct rate, not being sloppy about it, you know, hitting the species that you're targeting, but there are alternatives to to Tordon that we can use, and I'm not going to get you know into the detail and all the names right now. There's a pub for that um, plug for our natural resource stewardship website. There's a pub pub on chemical control of of unwanted vegetation, but Tordon is very mobile, and there's a high chance, especially if you're getting sloppy out there, of 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 hitting um, non-target species. Effective, yes, but mobile. All right. And he he has another question. He says, once invasive species are under control, would it be appropriate to plant native woodland species? Oh, absolutely. Um, Either planting them uh, by hand or doing a variety of forest management practices to encourage their natural uh, regeneration. And it is kind of impressive what will happen within the seed bank and the soil uh, anyway, once you remove those uh, invasive species and and let um, sunlight hit the forest floor. So like I said before, though, um, you've got to be diligent. Once they're gone, um, again, there's there's seeds in the seed bank in the soil. You don't know what your neighbor's doing. Um, they can be transferred from your neighbor's property onto yours. So I would try your best as you can to capture that site with native species and really be diligent about monitoring that area uh, in the future uh, to make sure that the invasive species don't uh, come back. And at that point, if you've kind of gone from an infestation level to some spotty scattered plants, that's a really good situation to have because you can identify and, and really it's more realistic to control those um, invasive species. I'll add this too. It's, it's, it's overwhelming sometimes with invasive species infestations. And honestly, sometimes you can almost barely walk through these properties because of the, the density of them is I would, you know, if you've got limited time and limited resources, keep the good areas good first. So invasive species love disturbance. So they're going to be really prevalent along woodland edges but maybe pick out a spot in the woodland matrix that has a few scattered invasive species popping up and just make sure that that, that area it remains you know, invasive species free. So maybe target your, your, res- your limited resources there. Let's go to the phones, 866-780-9100. Maria is on the line in Des Moines. Hi, Maria. Hi there. What's your question? Um, I had a question about 
land stewardship. I inherited a couple hundred acres on a farm, and right now uh, the renter grazes cattle, but I'm very interested in supporting pollinators and things. And I wondered what kind of things I could do to reestablish prairie plants there or if the cows have to go. So I will uh, defer. <laughs> I am not a prairie expert by any means. I, I, I will say, though, that um, excessive kind of uncontrolled grazing in woodlands is very detrimental to not only the mature trees, but the forest understory and the soil. Um, so uh-huh. that would be something to, to look into. Um, and then again, I'll, I'll plug our website. We've got a, a contacts page on that website uh, for natural resource professionals. You can click your county and you can see the wildlife biologists. You can see the foresters, the forestry contractors, the cost share, uh-huh. um, the USDA folks uh, that serve your county. And that would be my place to start for looking at how to, to reestablish um, prairie and the woodland resources on, on your place there. That, that would be my first step. Yeah, okay. I would, I would, I would add too that um, prairies are a wonderful thing to establish, and um, uh, there are a lot of great benefits to it. But the most important uh, thing to keep in mind is that they require a lot of um, education to make sure that you understand mm-hmm. um, what to plant, when to get it started, and most importantly, how to manage it, especially in those first like five or so years, because an unmanaged prairie planting can become a huge weed patch uh, full of non native uh. invasive plants, non native, especially woody plants can be really problematic. And so having a good understanding of how to manage that planting because a prairie planting still needs to be managed. I think sometimes we approach it as like, oh, I'll just spread some seed out there and it'll do its thing. Um, and in reality, <laughs> uh, it takes more than that. So don't uh, go into it with eyes wide open, maybe. And uh, there are some wonderful resources out there. The ones that Billy just mentioned, the other one I would uh, look into is the Iowa Prairie Network. Um, they are a great okay. uh, resource for mentoring as well as information. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks a lot for the call, Maria. 866-780-9100 is the number. Jim is up next in Cedar Falls. Hi, Jim. Yeah. Hi. Go ahead. So I have a, I have a poinsettia plant that I've rebloomed for several years. I plant it outside in the spring and then bring it in in the fall and have it go through the dark treatment and all that kind of thing. Well, this year when I brought it in, I must have overwatered it. And all the leaves died, but now it has new growth growing on the tips. Do you have any suggestion about what I should try to do if, uh, if it's still redeemable? Yeah, if you're seeing new growth, it's probably still redeemable. Um, it's probably not going to be the most attractive thing this year, but uh, these plants do get big over time, and so they often need a good uh, prune back. Usually we do that after flowering. Uh, because we don't want to lose the potential of having flowers. Um, are you noticing any red at all on the bracts or any bracts forming, that kind of thing? No. In fact, there's just small uh, leaves growing at the tips, like okay. just new growth. But the, sure. all the existing leaves that were on the branches are dead. Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple ways you can approach this. I would probably at this point, especially since you're not seeing any red, you're not going to have any blooms for 
for the holidays this year anyway. Right. So uh, I would cut it back. You can be fairly aggressive in how far you cut it back. Uh, that will promote some new branching. Okay. Um, and uh, make sure you give it abundant light indoors. Um, and then you could probably give it a little bit of fertilizer uh, to help it kind of get going. But don't do too much. When you really want to get going on fertilizing it is once you kind of ship it outside after the danger of frost has passed. Poinsettias really uh -huh. respond to fertilizer. So uh, that will help kind of get it to regrow what you've cut back. Um, and uh, you'll probably still have to cut it back again uh, early to midsummer, so that you don't have this enormous plant that you're trying to bring in and, and get to bloom. Yeah, it's been um, pretty big. But that should help. Yeah, they do get quite large over time. So uh, that cutback will be really uh, beneficial uh, for that reason. And so I could probably do that are, now? You could do that now because you're, you're not going to have blooms for the holiday season this year. So, right. Um, it, you can start that now, absolutely. And... Uh, they are um, very prone to certain root rot diseases. So if they do stay wet too long, uh, what you've noticed uh, is very typical. I did actually propagate one from a cutting last year. and It's actually mm. here in the kitchen. It's getting pretty big, too. I thought about yep. maybe just trying to just propagate some more plants from this That's big a, plant. But, um, yep. That's another great approach. Uh, poinsettia propagates very readily from cuttings, and that's a great way to kind of rejuvenate and start over um, because those original plants can get pretty gnarly and large. Jim, thanks for the call, and I'm super impressed that you've been able to get your poinsettia I know. To what a fun repeatedly. project. Yeah. You, you are indisciplined, <laughs> I have to say. If you have a question, you can give us a call, 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Joanne has a question. She says, what can I replace Barbary bushes with in the area directly next to my home? Mm. Okay, so, you know, Barberry is a plant that we are recommending less and less uh, because of its potential for um, spreading, especially into our native woodlands. Uh, plants that are relatively the same size um, would include things. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind that I really love is a uh, birch leaf spirea. So this is a um, it's a roughly the same size as a barberry, kind of that low kind of moundy growth, and uh, has wonderful fall color. Has cute little white flowers in the spring. Um, just kind of a nice, tidy little shrub, which, you know, one of the things we love about barberry is they look tidy. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that's the first one that comes to mind. Um, any of the spirea actually can uh, potentially be replacements, although when you run across, you know, a lot of horticulturalists in particular kind of turn their nose up at spirea. It's a tough plant. But when you see it, and I think it's because you see it so often in McDonald's parking lots and stuff. Like, it's just one of those plants that we, it's so Perhaps common. a little overused. It. Maybe a little overused. But there's a reason for that. They're, they're, they're small and compact. They tolerate a wide range of conditions. And um, uh, they're very easy to grow. So that's one of the reasons why you see them more often. And they're not nearly the weed issue that uh, barberry can become. So I would start with uh, looking into those two. All right. And uh, let's go back to the phones. Vicky's on the line in Des Moines. Hi, Vicki. Hi. What's your question? My question is, um, I own four acres in southeast Iowa, and I would like to plant chestnut trees on that land. And I don't know if that's possible or if I have enough space for that. 
Well, four acres is a lot. So you definitely have enough space. And again, I'll go back to um, reaching out to a forester on this one. There's also like, you know, the Iowa nut growers and um, resources uh, like that around the state. But like I said, um, always look at your site and your soils uh, first to see Uh chestnuts. Chestnuts will work there. And another thing with chestnuts, and we were talking about this, you know, fruit trees, anything like that. They're a lot of work. Um, They're more work than, say, you know, sticking an oak tree in the ground for a, you know, for wildlife purposes or something like that. So just kind of read up, um, get with your forester down there or or horticulturalist with extension down there, check out your soils. Okay. um, And then really check out, you know, your time, your, your financial resources, you know, how much are you going to pump into these? Uh, But you definitely got enough room with four acres. You know, if you're looking at, they recommend chestnuts at a 20 by 20 spacing. That's a, a general, general spacing. I mean, that's, do the math. That's that's hundreds of chestnut trees that you could you could fit on that property. So sure. you gotta be thinking about how am I gonna protect these? Um, this goes with any kind of you know urban or rural tree planting. How am I gonna protect uh-huh. these from herbivory? Um, you know, herbicide drift. We deal with oh, that a lot sure. in Iowa. Um, how am I gonna protect these when we get drought conditions? How am I gonna water these things? I fell victim to that this year. I planted a number of seedlings at my place and then it didn't rain for two months. Did I have an irrigation oh, plan? No. no. <laughs> so just, I would really say before you jump into something like chestnuts, which have a, you know, very cool tree, a lot of potential, um, just kind of do your uh-huh. homework, talk with the professionals and really scope out your site and think about uh, your time commitment and what you're willing to, to do. But no, Southeast Iowa, um, your upland sites could be very uh, a good spot to, to grow some chestnuts. Well, and, and Vicki, I have to toss in here because uh-huh. uh, they've been guests on the show over the years. Uh, Tom Wall and Kathy Dice of Redfern Farm in Wapolo grow a lot of chestnuts uh-huh. very successfully, and they, they love to share their experience and information with others. So you might check that out. Oh. They're also down there in Southeast Iowa. All right. Well, thank you so much for the information. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks a lot for the call, Vicki. And next is Gina in Ames. Hi, Gina. Hello. Thank you so much. And hello, Billy. Uh, I have two quick questions. I've planted, uh, I have some like two-year-old fruit trees about 10 foot tall. When's the best time to prune them in the spring or the fall? Spring is going to be the best time to prune any of our fruit trees. So, um, again, I, I, I aim for that first couple of weeks in March. Okay, awesome. And the other question is, I planted a couple of one-and-a-half to two-inch um, uh, trunk burr oaks, and a couple of them that were really green, doing great, and this summer, I mean, I watered them pretty well every week or so. Anyway, they all of a sudden, the leaves started turning brown. And then over a couple of weeks, they a lot of them fell off. And it looked like it was going to die. And then the leaves came back on right. two of them. But one of them, they didn't. Interesting. Um, there... So, go on. Well, no, I was just wondering what this is or what I could do or what I, yeah. It sounds like they they hit some kind of stressor, which, of course, definitely happened to especially young, uh, newly planted trees. The fact that they came back is one of the things that makes me feel like they were under some kind of stress, whether that was um, uh, water stress, 
either too much or too little um, because it's really easy to accidentally overwater when temperatures get really warm. Um, Either of those could cause that kind of leaf drop to occur. The one that did not sprout back, I would definitely watch carefully this spring. Um, if, if it doesn't leaf out this spring, then you've lost that one. I would be surprised if the other two don't leaf out this spring, considering that they rebounded. Make sure that you put a little bit of chicken wire fencing around these little guys this winter um, to keep the bunnies off of them, um, because it doesn't take much for those little trees to get very severely damaged, um, and then uh, they should uh, pull through okay. Aaron yeah, made a good point, too, is about just kind of okay. being patient and seeing what happens with them. Um, a lot of times the stressors that we talk about is it's not like a, a this single disease or insect that comes through and, and hits them. It's it's a combination of site conditions and, like he said, too much, too little water. So one thing I would look at, too, is just if the buds, if the leaves drop and the buds look healthy and, you know, uh, firm and, and, and uh, with good color, I think you're going to be good next year. But just do everything you can to reduce those stressors throughout the growing season. Gina, thanks a lot for the call. And we are out of time. Uh, We did get a question for just a repeat of the name of the Master Woodland Steward programs that you'll be offering in the spring of 2023. So it's the Iowa Master Woodland Steward program. You can find that if you just type that into your search engine and find out more information about those opportunities in the spring. And this is also our last weekly Hort Day until March. So we'll be coming to you through the winter months every other Friday here on Talk of Iowa. It's it's getting cold outside. Aaron Style, thank you so much. You're welcome. Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. Billy Beck, thank you. Thank you, Charity. Billy Beck, Iowa State University Extension Forester. Again, we'll be back the week after Thanksgiving with Horticulture Day on Talk of Iowa. Have a great holiday. Have a great weekend. This is Talk of Iowa.